Well, I just think we will always keep fighting to find our loved ones. And when this happens, even in my story, I'd rather, I would have rather had, and many people did, come to me and say, Monty, I don't know what to say. And I tell them that's what I'd rather hear than I'm sorry or sorry for your loss. I'd rather have them say honestly, I don't know what to say. But I do know that for all of us in Indian country who have buried our children, we know that a big part of us dies with our child. And I know I will never be the same Monty from May 26, two years ago, because we are not meant to bury our children before us. And that's what, and that's what I, I live with, is people will never understand that unless they have buried a child. This is the Silver Linings Handbook Podcast. I'm Jason Blair. That's Monty Awan Frank, a member of the Ojibwe tribe who lives in the Lacs Indian Reservation in east-central Minnesota. At a time when a day doesn't go by where a Native woman goes missing or is murdered in the United States or Canada, Monty stands out as a strong man who has dedicated himself to what's called the Missing and Murdered Indigenous Women's Movement. Missing and Murdered Indigenous People is not new. It's been going on for centuries since Christopher Columbus came to the shores of Cuba and decimated the indigenous populations. It has continued through colonization, and it continues today. The Missing and Murdered Indigenous Women's Movement, however, is dedicated to finally bringing awareness to the specific area of ongoing tragedies that have ravaged generations of Native families and communities. Monty is a part of the Mukwa clan of the Malax Band of Ojibwe. He works as a tribal first responder and advocate, and he's the father of a young Indigenous woman, Nada Frank who was sex trafficked after going missing several times between the ages of 14 and 16. Nada had just begun to get her life on track when she was murdered on May 26, 2021, at the young age of 24 years old. No one knows how many Indigenous people have gone missing or been murdered in the United States and Canada. The U.S. Bureau of Indian Affairs estimates that there are 4,200 unsolved cases, but the actual numbers are likely to be much higher in an epidemic that advocates say stretches back to colonialism. The reasons for the underreporting vary from misclassification to a lack of a comprehensive federal database, but that doesn't answer why, in places like Minnesota, American Indian women and girls make up 1% of the population, but they're 8% of the ones who are murdered. 
Native women are twice as likely in the United States to experience violence than any other demographic. One in three Indigenous women is sexually assaulted during her lifetime. Native women are 20% more likely to experience a lifetime of violence. Two times as many Native women are likely to be victims at some point. To be born a Native American woman is to exponentially increase your likelihood of early death or trauma. Indigenous women are murdered 10 times higher than all other ethnicities. Monty serves as the chair of the Advisory Council for the Minnesota Missing and Murdered Indigenous Relatives Office, where he focuses on advising, consulting, and making recommendations to state officials. Today, as a renewed push has begun among some federal state to deal with the challenge of missing and murdered natives, we're going to discuss the history, the causes, and challenges related to these problems and what can be truly done to address these and other challenges for Native American people and communities, both on and off reservations. Normally, this is where I would dive right into the story, but Monty and I both feel it would be important to tell Nadia's story. So to honor her and inform you, I'm going to do something I don't normally do and tell her story in a narrative form. Nada was born on a bone-chillingly cold day in January 1996. Nada is a member of the Leech Lake Band of Ojibwe, and she was placed in foster care soon after her birth. Monty remembers first seeing Nada and her sister, dressed in ragged clothes, sleeping in a closet on his first visit to their foster home. Nada was nine years old when Monty and his wife, Jen, adopted both girls. Monty remembers the drive to take the girls to the family's home in the tiny lakeside town of Isle. Soon after Nada was adopted, it became clear to Jen and Monty that she was suffering from the symptoms of fetal alcohol spectrum disorder, a group of conditions that can create learning and behavioral problems, such as difficulty managing emotions, and poor impulse control. At one moment, Monty says, Nada threatened to hang herself. At other times, he said, the police had to be called. Soon, Monty and Jen made the gut-wrenching decision to place Nada in out-of-home care. Nada bounced from placement to placement and began to run away during her teenage years. It was just for a few days at first. Then the stretches grew longer and longer. In 2013, she vanished without a trace. Months passed and nothing turned up. Monty's contacts and law enforcement found nothing at all. Monty says Nada's social worker did little to help because, as he said, they were, quote, just a Native family. One day during a long stretch where Nada was missing, Monty received a call from law enforcement authorities who had begun detecting pictures of natives circulating on adult websites where men bought sex. Later, after Nada was placed in a group home for young women, she began attending high school again. It was then she opened up to law enforcement about how she had been physically and sexually assaulted, sexually exploited, and trafficked. 
She said her biological mother's boyfriend had sold both her and her biological mother to sex traffickers. The case was referred to the St. Paul, Minnesota police, who now have no record of the case being investigated. A couple months later, after making her report, Nada ran away again. This time, it took a few weeks to find her. But later, Nada would find a great amount of stability and begin to rebuild her life. She met a man at work, got engaged, and fantasized about the future. They broke up, however, because Nada was having difficulty, unsurprisingly, with trust. Soon she began dating another man, and on May 26, 2021, shots rang out in an apartment complex in Minnesota. The rounds tore through several apartment walls. As the police evacuated the building, no one answered in apartment 103. The door was blocked by several items. The police put a camera through a crack in the door and saw two bodies. One was Nada and one was her boyfriend, who had killed her in a murder-suicide. Hey, Monty, I just wanted to thank you for joining me, give you a little background on my interest in this topic, super important topic that, you know, I, I am a person who grew up, you know, uh, middle class, got a great education, but I never really understood until I became a reporter at the New York Times, like, the true sort of state of what was happening in Indian country. And there was one real key inflection point. I began um, mentoring a uh, a woman who was native from the state of Washington. And she was the first person, she was a journalism student in college, who really exposed me to the um, some of the poverty, some of the challenges that happened in native communities and the current impact that sort of we as Americans, as an American country were, were landing on them. And that put the issues, you know, of uh, all sorts of issues on my radar screen, including not the least of which was missing and murdered women. And, um, you know, recently I've been talking to a friend of mine who is Ojibwe from Minnesota about how important it is to tell the story and, um, have more people, I think, understand the reality. So I was grateful when I tripped across your story in newspapers because I really thought that you're, you sound like you're an important voice to the whole conversation. So thank you for coming on. Well, you know, Jason, it's a real honor to be asked. You just never know where a story will lead or who's you know, mind or body or spirit will find the story. And here we are, you and I sitting together, talking about this, as we say, you know, this epidemic of missing and murdered Indigenous relatives. And just how I always start any story, we as Ojibwe people, we have to introduce ourselves in our traditional way, which is, I will say, Bozu, Awan in Hinegaz, Monty Frank, Indigo, Malax, Indujiba, 
Chiminasing Inda, Iwadi Dash Tribal Emergency Management, and Makwaduduum. In English, that just says Bozu means hello. My traditional Ojibwe name is Awan, which means the fog. Um, I uh, am here at the, I'm here within the Malax band of Ojibwe. I, I live in the Chiminasing district, and Chiminasing means people of the island or in the little community of Isle, Minnesota. And I do uh, and I do emergency management for the Malax band. And Mukwa is the clan I belong to, which which is the the clan of the bear. And traditionally, that role was either a medicine person or a protector. So uh, my job and 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 tribal public safety definitely has followed where that clan has has led me to. Follows your family history. For people who don't really know a lot about the sort of journey of the Ojibwe and you know the the tribes in general, we were talking off um, Mike. You were saying there is it five hundred and thirty five. Uh, no, actually, there are, you know, you know, right now within the boundaries of the United States, there are 580 federally recognized tribes. And we have to realize that when first contact happened, you know, there were millions of indigenous people who called this land home. And through, you know, from first contact and federal Indian policies and, you know, in one word, genocide, you know, we are now down to 580 federally recognized tribes in the United States, plus wanting to recognize we have very large urban populations also uh, due to relocation policies in the 1950s. Right, right. Yeah, I was recently reading for the second time the book Yellowbird. Have you have you read that book? I have I have not read it, but I've heard about it. Yeah, right. And one of the really interesting parts about it um, in the beginning of the book, they talk a little bit about um, not a little bit. They talk about a lot of uh, you know one of the big things that happened in that area was there was a river and there was a project to sort of adjust the flow of the river, but it flooded out a significant point of uh, part of the reservation. Three hundred families had to be relocated because of it. They offered jobs to some of the people who were displaced all over the country in different, and this was happening in the 1950s, Mm -hmm. in different places. And it made me think as I was looking at it that, you know, I think through a lot of my life, I've looked at what's happened to natives in America through the lens of you know, this American exceptionalism, this idea that we have to assimilate other other cultures into our culture and that we don't really respect diversity. As somebody who's an African-American, I kind of get that and feel that vibe at times. But when I was reading those stories about the relocations, I, I felt as if it wasn't really about assimilation, but it was about wiping out. A culture that mm-hmm. many of our policies were driven uh, in that direction. Well, you know, most every federal Indian policy, really from first contact, was designed to basically, you know, to exterminate the native populations that, you know, European society encountered because they wanted the, the natural resources 
of the lands. And, you know, who was in the way? All of the native people who called, you know, this you know, Mother Earth home. And so, you know, it, it, there are so many federal Indian policies from, you know, first contact from, you know, treaty times in the 1800s. Then you talked about the assimilation times, and that was the boarding schools that were going from, you know, 1800s into the 19, you know, early 1970s, you know. And then we, you talked about the relocation programs, and those were in the mid-50s. And many of my relatives ended up on the West Coast, you know, in Los Angeles, you know, in the 1950s because they were supposedly, you know, promised a better life and, you know, a one-way ticket and, you know, and, and no way home, you know. And then it came into the termination period where the United States realized they could not maintain, you know, uh, keep funding all these tribes and certain tribes were just terminated. And in the, in the Midwest region, you know, the, the, the Menominee Nation was a prime example that was terminated. One day you are a, a recognized sovereign nation and, and next day you weren't. And, you know, Ada Deer, who had just passed away here, was just, a, a, you know, a Nikwe, a, a woman warrior who just fought tooth and nail and was able to get, you know, the federal recognition back. But we always say when our elders tell us these stories about all these federal Indian policies and what they lead into, which we call historical trauma. And every story elders I've listened to in talking circles and gatherings have always shared that for every federal Indian policy placed upon the entire indigenous population of the United States, it will take seven generations to heal from every single federal Indian policy. And that those traumas are genetically passed from, you know, from, from mother to children. So we call this our blood memory. So those traumas of our grandparents and great and great grandparents were are always within us. And so many of us, including myself, we will we will travel into the spirit world with ever without ever overcoming all those traumas that are genetically within us from first contact until we were until you know right now we're in 2024 now. Yeah, and one of the things that I think I've Learned over the years that was really fascinating because I, I think a lot of this research has been done on indigenous populations and by indigenous scholars. But one of the things that's been sort of super clear to me, and I think Maria um, Braveheart, who's a uh, who is a um, sociologist who works at the University of New Mexico, and she she identified and explored this concept of intergenerational trauma, that trauma mm -hmm. is passed on from generation to generation to generation. Yep. And exactly. You see the effects today. Yep. But at the same time, researchers on the biological side discovered that trauma actually changes your DNA. Yes, it does. And that to me was just a, in thinking of the Native American and the Native experience and all of North America and South America, that was kind of a frightening idea.
Because, you know, uh, today you have a lot of people, including some justices on our Supreme Court, who really believe we've gotten to the point where uh, providing affirmative help to anyone is discrimination. But I keep on thinking to myself, what amount of affirmative help is going to make up for generations and generations and generations of trauma? You know, and that is a story that we have heard across Indian country. And right now, you might have read also of that Secretary Holland has been traveling across Indian country having hearings on that's boarding Deb school. Holland. Yep. She, that's Deb Holland, who's the first Native cabinet secretary. Yes, right? yes. And we were so honored. And in fact, she had actually came to the Mille Lacs Band of Ojibwe to host one of her listening sessions for boarding school survivors. And I had I was able to attend and just um, to my, I mean, honor or surprise, not only do we have Deb Holland, but we had, you know, we had our Lieutenant Governor of Minnesota, Lieutenant Peggy Flanagan, who is the highest ranking elected Native woman in the entire United States. And and I was just listening to the boarding school story since I'm second generation from a boarding school survivor on my grandmother and also on and also on my father. But to my surprise, these two strong indigenous women came up to me and just, you know, came up to me and just re, just expressed their their sorrow of my daughter's story. Mm. And here is the secretary of interior, you know, the highest native woman elect, you know, put into office and the highest elected official who just came to me as strong indigenous women and just showed their support and care and compassion of being a father of a of of a daughter who was human trafficked and murdered at age 24 and what and it and that showed exactly how they are as indigenous women their strength and their passion to leave what they were there for and come to me in that way as as someone who's you know, as someone who's indigenous, did you ever imagine the day where you would be sitting in front of a cabinet secretary who is native? Well, you know, as as I got to tell her, is uh, in 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 BIA history in the in the early nineteen seventies. A group of Native men called the Furious 14 went out and tried to change the Bureau of Indian Affairs. And my father, Lee Cook, was one of them. And the bureaucracy was so embedded that these Furious 14 Native men who went out to change the BIA just couldn't accomplish that. And my father's wish was one he would he always hoped to see a native person 
who was the Secretary of Interior. And mm. and even though you know he passed away two years ago of complications with COVID, but also he had he was getting severe well severe Alzheimer's also. But he was still well enough to watch his dream come true. Oh, that's awesome. and and have you ever have you have you ever heard of the Maya Lang- Maya Angelou um, poem "Still I Rise"? There's this line that's so powerful, at least for I, I think for me and a lot of people. But where she says, "Bringing the gifts that my ancestors gave, I am the dream and the hope of a slave." And it's almost like Deb Holland is sort of the dream and the hope of your ancestor. You know, and that is something which, which I got to tell her. That's awesome. Yeah, it, it, it was. And to just look at her and just tell her, you know, to tell her, you're my father's dream. He could not accomplish this with other Native men going to D.C. in the early 70s. And he always wished he would see this day, and he did be, be, before he passed. And I and I was it was so honored to tell her that because because I've heard you know his stories of what he tried to do but couldn't, and this was this was his hope before he would travel on the spirit world, and 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 he was able to see that. Yeah, it's just amazing to think that the woman inside who's running that department responsible for all native affairs, at least with, for the American government is finally a native. And it's kind of crazy to think that we've never even really had high ranking um, people in that role. You mentioned your daughter, Nada, um, who, you know, went missing several times and was eventually murdered. I remember reading in her obituary, it talked about how her name meant she's a fierce, passionate woman. And certainly in reading about her, it sounded like she was. And and there was this line in there where you said that she was young, beautiful, and wise beyond her years. And I'm just curious, like, you know, so many times we spend so much time on how people die and we don't spend time on how they live. What was she like? You know, um, you know, in, in, in her short life, and as you said, you know, so passionately, you know, you know, her Ojibwe name was so fitting because through the traumas that she lived through, and like in my story, she also had a diagnosis of second generational fetal alcohol syndrome. And what I've learned is that there are probably so many other young adults who are probably undiagnosed with that same disorder, which causes them to struggle in their life with relationships, careers, education, behavioral health, chemical dependency, and unfortunately, it can lead them into being human trafficked. And I know Nada 
was makes them very vulnerable, essentially, to other people. I wouldn't say I wouldn't say vulnerable, but the mm-hmm. big thing that they do not have is impulse control, which mm-hmm. could lead them into unsafe situations. Or, you know, when I've talked to other advocates, it's like the bling at the moment attracts them. Because they don't have that impulse control to say, you know, no or stop, you know, and unfortunately they will never have that. And there's no, there's no cure for this. And sort of like that filter in our brain that tells us that the bright, shiny object in front of us is not uh, necessarily as, 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 as good for us as we think, because you know, it, it's the the same thing that you know. Uh, I I I think it can almost be a positive quality at times where people who are very impulsive can take the world with reckless abandon, but it can also be very dangerous for them and others. Right, and for her, she she was such strong and resilient that she never liked when we have to remind of that she had that diagnosis, you know, and she at times would just tell us, you know, I understand my, my brain doesn't always work as well as others, but she never, she never liked having like that title over her with that. And she really, you know, she lived life to, she always did. She, she, you know, she tried to live her life every day as as herself as her strong indigenous self she had she had wishes she had dreams she had goals she would would like to do with that but unfortunately that issue and then some and a lot of other traumas that were going in her life just she just couldn't control those. And what did you love what did you love the most about her? You know, <laughs> what I loved most about my daughter is, you know, uh, tip especially as as she got older, just that teenage snarkiness that a lot of us who are indigenous parents will know exactly what I'm talking about. And and you know, and it was one of those things that, you know, in our household would definitely would cause issues between myself and and her mother wise because it would it was I was like I'm like bring it you on girl amusing oh I I, I I yeah exactly because I just thought this is so age appropriate for <laughs> teenage native young strong passionate young woman. You know, just testing those boundaries and seeing what we as as your parents were going to do or taking things, and that and and that's what I remember. It it just you know it was, you know, some nights you just it just was like tiring, but I look back and it, those are the moments I just look back and say, you know, that was my NATO. That <laughs> that that was my girl. Just just. Strong, passionate, snarky, and just so appropriate for her age. 
I remember talking to my partner about this or my former partner about mm-hmm. this at one point, where I was like, this is how kids test our love sometimes. It is. They yep. push the limits and test the limits, and we are still there, and we still love them just as much as before that snarky comment or that wild thing they did. And yeah. it's probably it was probably really important to her as somebody who grew up in foster care before you to know that she was loved and it sounds like loved unconditionally you know and when i hear how you put it in your words it it goes back to part of her story and that was when she turned 20 years old uh, and we had dinner together to celebrate and 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 my beautiful girl was such a foodie. She liked different food venues and liked trying things. And and he went out to a, a Brazilian steakhouse and just had one of those truly remarkable father That's the daughter. One they bring you the meat on. Oh yeah, oh yeah, over and over. Oh, it, 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 yeah. no, you just gorge yourself. But you know, but as a father and her twenty, in a twenty-year-old daughter. We had one of those magical moments where we just talk life, talked what her hopes were, what her dreams were, you know, what she's, you know, where her path has taken her. And as we were leaving, and I always tell this when I'm asked to tell her story, you know, and we're about to leave, and and my and and my beautiful girl just looked at me, you know, and said, Dad, I want to tell you one more thing. And and she looked at me with those beautiful eyes of hers and, and she just says, you know, dad, the only reason that I am alive is because of you. <laughs> because everything I did for you to give up on me, you never mm-hmm. did. And so you did show her unconditional love. She saw it. Well, it, sometimes actions speak louder than words. And yeah. and that was one of those, just, and we hugged, and yeah, it was just one of those beautiful, That's so beautiful. moments that, nope, that what her life had been through. And for me as her father was just one of the things I will never forget. And I will always tell the story. On Sounds that. like of, such of, a vivid, vivid memory. Can you, can you still, let's see, she it was 2021 in March. Can you still, in your mind, hear her voice and imagine her with you? Well, the one thing in our traditional Ojibwe funeral practices is we have to let our loved ones go. The stories that we were given about when our spirit passes is we have to let our loved ones go. They're going to a place that we call in our Ojibwe world the place of everlasting happiness. And if and if their spirit knows that we're still grieving, they're going to want to come back. And so we're told in our stories that once they're sent off, we have to let our loved ones go. 
And it's one of the unique things that when all my brothers and sisters in in fire, in EMS and emergency management showed up to support my darkest day for a traditional wake and funeral. That's the one thing all of them said that was the amazing part of the story. Because in most societies, we hang on and we grieve for years and years and we can't let things go. And in your traditional way, you have to do that for her or she won't be happy where she's going. And like, you know, in your story of covering 9-11, you know, I went to work following the next day following her funeral. And many people were like, what are you doing at work? And I said, where else? would I be? And like, you should be home grieving. And I said, not how we do things as Ojibwe people. We, everything spiritually was done for her. She's in a place where she's meeting, meeting all her relatives from thousands of years, you know? And now that I hope now that now that my, my father passed, I'm hoping those two met each other now up there and they're both are happy together again. Yeah. I am. Um, I had an interesting experience last year. My mom, um, she got sick and she'd been sick for years, but it was clearly getting worse. And my partner who I had mentioned before had gone in to visit her and my mom was singing a old African-American hymn. And she asked her, do you know this song? And she said, no, and my mom said that it is a hymn about going home to God in heaven. And my mom said, I can't wait, but just not today. Right. Yep. Yep. <laughs> and, it, you know, I took a cue from that when she actually passed away. And if you can believe this, you know, there were three sisters left on her side of the family. My mom passed away on October 27th. Nine days later, her younger sister passed away. Nine days later, the oldest sister passed away. That whole generation was um, gone. And I had thought when my mom died that I would be grieving and in tears for years. And what I found was, and this is going to sound crazy to people possibly, but I had such gratitude for having her in my life. And I have over time begun to sort of love this thing that I hate happened because in moments like this, Monty, when I'm having this conversation with you, I understand your loss more deeply. I understand also that reason why you have to let go, to grow, to move on, to take that person's gifts and insert them into the world. So I, I know it's not typical of American culture, but I certainly find what you're saying quite relatable for me right now. You know, and I think there are many cultures who have similar teachings. You know, you mentioned in, in your stories, there's many communities, I think, who are so culturally rich and who have those similar teachings about, you know, respect for elders and, you know, going into the next world, whatever they would call that, you know, and I think there's many, 
many cultures that, that, that follow similar things. And it makes us who are still here, you know, know that they're in a good place. They're happy where they're at. You know, they want us to be happy, you know. And, you know, my uncle Herb Sam always told the stories that, you know, he was one of our, one of our, one of our traditional healers here. And he always said when that, when the sun is setting and it's just a little sliver left, if you look really hard, you'll see all of our relatives who have passed dancing and are happy mm-hmm. at, at that moment. That's a powerful, yeah. that's a powerful image. I am. Um, I know you adopted Nada when she was nine years old, and she moved in, lived with you guys. Um, and but eventually, because of the the syndrome, she had to go into out of home placement. And you had mentioned, or you had talked to me about, and you've talked publicly about the fact that she went from placement to placement to placement. And even during those times where she went missing, which I definitely ask you about, Mm -hmm. she went missing, you know, you didn't get a lot of help from the social workers, the state social worker. And I think there was one time you were quoted as saying something along the lines of that you thought it was just because she was a native child. And in a lot of ways, like it sounds like, and there was another example where when she opened up about the things that had happened to her when she was sex trafficked, you know, the St. Paul, uh, Minnesota police had, had been, have received the report, but there's no evidence of an investigation. It seems like a lot of the systems that people believe exist to protect all of us and to protect native people failed her. And and that's, you know, when we think about that, the story you just said, you know, this has been going on since first contact. You look at the assimilation of boarding schools. It was the same type of thing of systems who were Those trying were like to the Christian border schools. That yep, were yep. Trying to sort of yeah, yeah they say, is they, is they say, you know, kill the Indian and save the man. And this is why in our history, that the Indian Child Welfare Act came into being because so many of our native children were basically scooped up, stolen, however you want to call it, and adopted out or given, you know, away to non-native families, figuring they're in a better situation. And you isn't know, that the, that's the law that the Supreme Court just uh, upheld, yes. that Native children, um, the first opportunity for adoption is given to other Native families, right? Well, yeah, you know, is exactly right. Or, you know, or if there is a situation where the care of the children may be temporarily, you know, there's issues in the home with the caregivers, mm-hmm. you know, then that child will stay within that tribal nation, you know, and try to find extended family or other, you know, relatives who could, you know, take them in for a time being with that one or another indigenous family possibly also. Because it was trying to maintain that sense of family. It was trying to maintain the culture for this child because 
of that whole 1960s adoption process that were going out and hit, you know, in Canada and everywhere else. It was just to remove Indian children from reservations and give them to non-Native families who thought could raise them better, you know, and and it left so many kids with trauma and scarring of loss of identity, you know, um, not knowing who they were. And so, yeah, it was definitely one with that. And, uh, yeah, and fortunately, you know, as I said before, many times those systems of, of, you know, of foster care systems or social work systems that have to oversee, you know, native families, you know, unfortunately had a history of just, you know, very implied bias case management. And it's it's basically that, you know, um, like in our story, you know, is that we saw systems who just saw our household as just a, oh, it's just one of those native families. And it didn't matter that, you know, that I was in tribal public safety for over 20 years and have a master's degree and many fire EMS certifications to do what I do, you know, well in my community. You know, her mother had had a four-year degree. It didn't matter. The only thing that was seen was what was on the outside. And so when you think about other cases, if this had been, let's say, a white suburban kid, well-off family, disappears, I think it would be front-page news, right? Well, like- but at, well, actually, it was. If you remember at the same time of, of my daughter's murder, there was a prominent young you know, non-Native woman who went missing in Utah and that case got two weeks of 24 seven coverage. It got the FBI involvement. It got all this press and media and attention. And, and, and when my Nada got murdered, her, her 24 years of life was only worth nine and a half minutes of media time. And it was just, number one, showing, you know, the, the call, the 911 call of the murder. And then when she was identified as the victim. Sort of and, like a metaphor for the way that she was treated in life. Yep, yep exactly right. And unfortunately... That is a story all across Indian country, not just my daughter's story. You know, there are so many indigenous families across, you know, the 580 tribes, the large urban populations that have the same story, that our native lives are not worth the time as others. You once said, you know, and I mean, I think part of that, part of the difficulty there is, you know, native communities 
need the support of the federal government in part because, you know, there's not real sovereignty. But if the federal government and the state governments don't truly provide that support, it creates this gap. And it reminds me of something you once said. I, I read this quote where you had said that found and alive is something that is rarely heard of when it comes to missing natives. Yes, but also in your statement about tribal sovereignty, it is something that, you know, that tribal nations hold dearly Mm -hmm. because we are a nation within a nation. And it's it is the strongest identification we have as native people is as is our sovereignty. And with the treaties that were signed in the eighteen hundreds, you know, that the federal government, you know, always has a treaty and trust responsibility to all five hundred and eighty federally recognized tribes. And that is something that we have seen under the under the current administration making really strong strides to try to meet the wrongs that were done by previous administrations. What does that look like, and what were you know? Those you know, I mean, in for example, in this epidemic of missing and murdered Indigenous relatives, you know, we are seeing now. Under Secretary Deb Holland, of her creating the the missing and murdered unit under the Bureau of Indian Affairs Law Enforcement Services, you know we are seeing under we're seeing dedicated you know FBI assigned to missing and murdered Indigenous relative cases. We are seeing Department of Justice units being created who focus on missing and murdered Indigenous women and relatives all over the United States with that one. So we are seeing that commitment being put forward by the federal government now, you know, and and they know this epidemic is so large and has been going on for so long that they know they're, they're coming up late in the game in the process where you know, this has been, you know, our indigenous women, you know, our grandmothers, our mothers are for this country. Existed. Yep, exactly. Exactly. And, and, and for those who, yeah, and if yourself included, if you went to the killers of the flower move, you know, the flower, you know, flower movie, you know, uh, uh, but the whole Osage nation. Yeah, yeah. And you just truly saw how, worthless indigenous lives meant watching that movie. Mm-hmm. And it's and, uh, not an exaggeration compared no. to the reality. Certainly if you've read the book or any right. of the articles yeah. on it, mm-hmm. you know, uh, the, I had a friend who asked me, was that played up a little bit? And I was like, no, 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 no. If anything, it was played down compared to, right. Yeah. Compared to what really yep. happened. Yep. When you talk no. about those changes that have happened, Monty, do mm-hmm. you, do you think those changes are permanent and here to stay? Or do you think that a shift in the political winds could could take us back to the place that we've been in? 
Well, let's go back to your previous question before we get into the into the tribal sovereignty. You quoted me, and I, and, and I want to go back to that, please. The one where you had said, um, I think I was talking about the one where you said that recovered alive is almost unheard of. And that was when I was um, asked to be on a federal panel uh, talking about this epidemic. And when I explained to this national federal policy board that I was able to recover my daughter alive. And this is before she had died or this? Right. Was- yep. Yep. Yeah. Yep. And, you know, you could have heard a pin drop. Mm-hmm. And finally, one of the people on that board, on that national listening group said, you know, do you know how rare and, you know, that is Hmm. because all they hear is stories of our relatives who are missing, presumed murdered and never found never found and that's a journey in my story when i meet so many other native families who tell me how lucky i am because you know where your daughter is at Hmm. and which is even in her death which is right across from my house here in Chiminasing in the cemetery because they have been waiting five, 10, 15, 20 years every day living and wondering where is their relative? Where is their sister? Where is their auntie? Where is their mother? And they may never get an answer. So it goes back to your current question about the resources today. And that is one thing which I tell a lot in my story is all the resources that are available to our Native families in this epidemic, I didn't have. You know, what I had was the National Center for Missing and Exploited Children. I had the uh, the Patty Wedling Foundation here in Minnesota. That's the Jacob Wedling. Yep, Jacob Wedling. That's Patty's mother. He was a Minnesota boy who was kidnapped, as I recall. Yep. In fact, when I started my public safety career in October of 89, that's when Jacob went missing. Wow. And I can remember... Back then, it was teletypes going off, and we were getting teletyped that this had happened. And and it's one of the things where, as I got to know Patty, you know, to, to tell her, you know, that story, but that one. But that's all the resources I had. But, you know, one of my cousins said, you know, you know, because you have a fraternity that no other indigenous families have in this epidemic. Hmm. And I'm like, 
fraternity, cuz? What, what do you mean? He said, you have a fraternity of public safety brothers and sisters. Mm. Mm. And I never thought about it until that moment. Because I knew when NATO was, was on run, she was always going into, into the Minneapolis area. And every firefighter, fire station I knew, EMT, ambulance service I knew, were always like, hey, my brother, give us your picture. We'll put it up in our, in our, you know, in our, in our station, in our ambulance garage. You know, we'll keep an eye out her for, for calls. And that's a gift that now what I have been through is truly there. And, and that is truly something where so many of our indigenous families will never have. They get that first responder at the door, whether he is or he or she is a BIA law enforcement officer, a tribal officer, you know, a county, a county sheriff, you know, deputy possibly, or maybe you, they live in an urban area. Like it's a, it's a large metropolitan, you know, law enforcement agency. And knowing that we are in a situation all across the United States, especially in Indian country, where we're short, we are so short staffed. And when you have, you know, one tribal officer patrolling hundreds of acres of land, you know, and they got 12 calls pending and you're calling to report your daughter, your son missing, where does it go in their priority list due to, you know, assault and progress, you know, other things that are could be higher crisis type type calls that are going on acute yeah yeah acute calls and you know and so we have to understand what's what's happening out there with that one so our families so our families get you know where will where will my report go will my report of my missing relatives be acted upon quickly or will we put on a file and they'll get to it when they get to it and that leads into some of the federal resources that are out there now. And the one, especially with the new missing and murdered unit with the Bureau of Indian Affairs, you know, now they have a 24-7 contact system. They have an app they can use. They have a QR code. You can go with your, with, with your, with your smartphone and access to put in you're missing relative information right as quickly as possible. And that will get funneled into the right agent to hopefully start following up sooner with time. So there, so there is some resources that are, are, are much improved for our, all of our native families, which in my story, I never had available. Right. Right. So we have made progress. I, re- I remember, uh, I was going to ask you first, uh, I cannot remember how many times Nada went missing, and I don't even know if you have that number. But I remember one of those times reading that Patty Wetterling, Jacob's mom, um, 
told you that the likelihood of her being found alive was minimal and that you should start planning her funeral. Right. And I'm, yep. I'm just wondering what it felt like in that moment to hear those those words while she was missing. Well, and in the in her in her story is at about 16 years old, she was human trafficked between 14 and 16. Is that she was being advertised through you know, like back pages and other type of media. And once all those resources of her being advertised went dormant and went quiet and there was nothing. Mm. And this was almost two years of no contact. So two years of no contact, but you yep. knew she had been advertised. Right. Yeah. So this is. Yep. So basically after 16, for almost two years after that, there was nothing. And, and both human traffic investigators from Minneapolis and St. Paul, there was nothing in that type of, you know, back page media resources that, that she was seen in before. And that, I mean, and Patty was just, and she still is an amazing woman, what she has been through. And all the time she called me just to say, you know, how are you doing? And it was getting close to two years. And, and, and as you said in the story, I had to ask her, you know, and Patty was Patty. And she was honest from the heart. And she just said, you know, through our experiences, the chances of recovering, you know, Nada alive, you know, and was to the point of I would tell you to start planning for a funeral. Hmm. And from Patty, it meant so much because you know where it was coming from when she said that. Yeah. Because yeah. because because her son, you know, was still missing and she just in her own way gave me the reality that I needed to hear. Yeah. Yeah. And I think sometimes it's so hard to hear those things because you know, I I think people think you cannot hold on to both hope and be realistic at the same time. But I really think you can be realistic and still also be, be hopeful. And I, I'm curious for you after that period where she was gone that long, was there ever a point where you had sort of given up hope or stopped searching or it became too painful for you and your wife? Well, I know that before that happened with Patty is there was a suburb called Columbia Heights, Minnesota that had impounded a vehicle during a snow emergency. And while doing inventory, they found, unfortunately, the body of a young girl who was obviously died of exposure in, in the trunk of one of the vehicles. And I'm just at home watching the news, hearing this, and the way they're describing her, you know, the gender, her hair, just 
fit at that time my daughter's, you know, looks of life. And I knew officers down in Columbia Heights and basically called them up and I said, I just watched the news. I said, you know, my daughter has been missing for over a year. And the description of the young woman you found in that vehicle sounds like my daughter. Um, let me send you her photo. If it is, you know, I will come down and identify the body. And I'll tell you, Jason, that is the longest five minutes I have ever waited in my life. Hmm. Because you're just so hard. You're just waiting, you know, is it or isn't it? You know, and the officer came back, you know, and it's just like, well, Monty, we, you know, we went out there and you're just like, yeah, yeah. And it says, it's not your daughter. Hmm. But then as a father, you think it's somebody else's, somebody else is going to get the worst news of their life eventually, Hmm. that that this is their daughter, you know. And again, that's what happened about about the, you know, about the two-year park. And that's when Patty Wedling then gave me the reality. What was it like to get that news about your daughter? Of not being her? Or of of it being her, because, you know, in her story, she had really pulled it together, it seemed like. She had opened up about her trauma. She had begun to rebuild her life. And I I imagine, to some extent, you and your wife had felt like we've gotten through the toughest parts, or one of the toughest parts. You know, you are correct in that. In that view, and especially came in the fact that you know when 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 she was recovered alive, and Nada was so adamant she never wanted the word rescued. She hated that word with a passion. Huh. Why? Because she it made her feel that she was weak because her strength and her passion. So when I tell she survived, she survived on her own. And because of that, you know, she wanted to get her life going. And when she, you know, that almost gave her strength to know that she was a survivor and that she she was because her, again, her Ojibwe name, a fierce, passionate woman. Akwadizi Nishka Ishkadid Ikwe was so her because she was determined to live her life in a good way. And on her own, she moved down to Minneapolis. You know, she did not graduate high school, but she found a a uh, two-year college that offered an actual high school diploma program for young adults who did not finish their high school diploma. And she did this on her own. Didn't ask for any help 
Right. And and then be you know and and I had planned to come down and she so fiercely independent, very much so. And actually, when she graduated, she didn't want us down there. And I'm like, well, I'm her father, and I'm not going to miss this moment because in Indian country, finishing high school is still such a remarkable accomplishment. So I went down there and I thought, well, hopefully I can just, it'd be a big auditorium and I can sneak in the back and she would never see me. And here it was in the, in the small classroom. And I'm like, I have no chance. I'm caught. <laughs> I, well, so I just thought, so I just stayed in the hallway and at an angle. So she couldn't see me, but I saw her walk up proud strong, resilient, and get her high school diploma on her own. And I, and, and, and I got a picture of that. And at the end, I went down to the reception area. I found the principal and I just said, hey, I, I'm Nada's father. Um, she didn't want me here, um, but I did come. I have a traditional gift for her. You know, can you please give it to her and, and just tell her I, I was here? So I was heading back to Chiminasing from from the from the cities, and about halfway through, she she texted me because of course kids don't call their call their parents, <laughs> and just you know, and to my surprise, she said, "Dad, if I knew you were there, I wanted you to see me graduate." Mm. You know, and 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 she did that on her own. So she good. she found a uh, a company to work for that. You know, with a high school diploma, she found a company that you know, full-time employment, full medical, you know, medical, all the benefits of a full-time position, all on her own, you know, and that was just her strength. And I can hear your, I can hear your pride. Oh, it, it, it was. And, and even at that time, you know, she did have a boyfriend in her life at that, at that time also. And, you know, and, and those two had their good days and their struggles, you know, because, you know, uh, that fetal alcohol syndrome is very challenging in relationships mm -hmm. and, and for sure it, it challenged them many times. And, and I would talk to the very, just very great young man who was in her life, who I'm still very much connected to and i always said you know i said if you can't you know for your own self-care if this gets too much for you i understand if you have to end it and i will still care for you as any as i can because of all the care and love you you've given my daughter oh wow so so she found somebody who who clearly loves her deeply i would imagine though for her uh, trying to trust must have been hard. It, it, it definitely, it definitely was, you know. And and they were, and they lasted five years, and you know, and when it ended, you know, it it ended on on, on their terms, you know, and 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 she went on until the very sad day of May twenty sixth. How did did you ever find out, Monty? who how she ended up in the black hole of sex trafficking i think a lot of people don't understand how you can even get to that point 
Well, a many, and I'm thinking, you know, when I have met so many other, you know, families inflicted through the epidemic or other survivors. And that's the word survival. And when I have met other indigenous, you know, women and men who survived human trafficking, the story that I hear is that's what it was. I had to survive. And the only way I could survive is using my body to survive. Yeah. I remember a friend, um, a friend of mine who's an indigenous woman, I was telling her a little bit about your story. And she said to me, sadly, I, and she was, I think she was just talking about the area around her. I know dozens of stories that are like that. And I was just taken aback by the idea that, you know, you could know dozens of stories in your own community that, that, that involves sex trafficking or involved some sort of sexual abuse or assault along those lines. Is it, is it uncommon where you are? Is it common? You know, it, as you said, with the person you talk with, you know, unfortunately because of the historical trauma placed upon all indigenous people by federal policies that this story that she told you becomes almost normalized mm. in Indian country because we so many almost everybody has lived that story. And it's it just is like yep me too, because it it just happens every day across Indian country and 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 the urban areas that our native families call home. What was it like on March twenty sixth, two thousand twenty one for you? <sighs> well, for. What can anybody say? It's it's the worst day a parent can ever go through. And for myself, you know, as I told the story, you know, I was about to go off shift, and we had a, a fire in and it went in an abandoned tribal home here, and. I do what my training does. You kick into training mode, you get on scene, you I become the instant commander. I do what's called a 360 around the house. I assess it. It was abandoned. You know, I look at, you know, what the smoke's doing, what the wind's doing. I'm reporting to the fire department coming on scene of what we have here, type of structure, type of construction, where the fire hydrant is. And while this is going on, my my cell my my cell phone is blowing up from my not from my ex wife and Nada's mother, you know. And I'm like, hey, I'm here. I got to take care of this this fire scene until the end, and that's what I'm doing. 
And so I was three hours past my normal shift, which happens very common for, for, for anybody in public safety. But then my daughter, Lenicia, texted me and said, Dad, call home. It's an emergency. And when I finally was able to do that, and for those of us in public safety who have ever had to give a notice of a death, when I called, what I heard on the other end of Nada's mother, the screaming, the crying, the ability to can't even speak, I knew. Hmm. And all and all I could all I could say is she's dead, isn't she? And we didn't know what had happened is that all we know is that she was murdered. The following day, because by this time it was way past 11 o'clock at night. So now we have to call three sets of grandparents, get them out of bed, and try to tell them and repeating and repeating and repeating that their granddaughter is dead. It's moments like that where you realize the words that we use, I'm sorry for your loss, which yeah, yeah. is so inadequate. You know, and and then, you know, the next call I made was to a spiritual person who does our funerals and knowing that my daughter was a fierce passionate woman i needed a strong indigenous woman to send her off into the spirit world so i called babata boyd here with the malax band and let her know that my daughter was dead and I and I wanted her to do her funeral and her wake, and she accepted. And and then I called a good friend of mine, Greg Hayes, with with Mindewakan Public Safety, and I, you know, I, you know, I told him my daughter had been murdered. And I said, I need you to do some things for me, Greg. He said, I need you to let our public safety family know. And two, as part of the wake and the funeral, I need to feed everybody. So if you can tell our brothers and sisters in public safety, you have to bring food. And Greg was like, I got you, my brother. Mm. Focus on your family. I've got you. And Babata was guiding us the entire process i have been to so many wakes and funerals in my time with the malax band but she was just as she is as a strong in, indigenous woman herself and just caring compassionate and getting us through this yeah. and when that 
when the wake came. And unfortunately, on the same day as my daughter's murder, our most highly respected elder woman in our community, also a relative of mine, had also passed of just natural causes. So we had to figure out how we're going to do the funerals. And I'm like, let her go first. Let her go first. She's the most senior elder woman we have who is such held in high regards. And so we went on Memorial Day weekend. And the center I live by in Chiminasing was actually being remodeled. And so our district rep, Marvin Bruno, called me up and said, have it up at our East Lake or Minnesota Center. And truly that where it was meant to be, because I had brought my, my girls to what we call ceremonial drum many times up there. Mm-hmm. And when I walked in on Friday for the wake and that gym was full of community members, of friends, but also uniforms, Mm. you know, and they, and that just showed what the gift of of public safety, of what they did. They loved you. They loved her by extension and the community. Well, I, yeah. It's it's such a powerful, I think, it's a powerful story. And I remember reading about you speaking to a federal task force for the previous administration. Is that right? Correct. Yep. Yeah. And, and you were up there for five and a half minutes, and then your microphone was muted. Yeah. Apparently, that happened to a number of people that day. And I keep on thinking about it in the context of the symbol for the missing and murdered indigenous uh, women's movement that it's a red handprint yep. covering a woman's mouth. Yep. And I just thought like, after hearing a story like yours, how could anyone mute you or not have your voice at the table? Well, they muted all of us. And that was the same one when I realized, you know, that, that I had to tell them, that I recovered my daughter alive before they muted me. And and all of us did not realize that that had occurred because as Native people, we're always storytellers. Mm. And when we, when we tell our stories, we tell it from beginning to end. And we would be hoped that we would be respected enough to let us tell the story, no matter how long it took. But as you said, this this group did not wish to hear the stories, except probably say, you know, we've, we've checked in the box and let's move on. Yeah. It compounds the, I think, the pain to to have someone, you know, say that they want to hear your story about this loss and what to do about it, but then, you know, silence you in the same way that you're sort of describing 
You know, and thinking back to your daughter's experience where you were saying to so many people she was just a Native girl and was treated differently, and it was almost the same thing happening to you all. Exactly. You know, it, the, the trauma just repeats itself. And that is why when Native Spirit was sent to the place of everlasting happiness on, on the second day of the funeral, and that is why in, and all the advocates who came wearing their red ribbon skirts approached me and and first of all, I just thanked them for getting me through this because many of them have were there her entire life of being trafficked and you know and and now being murdered. And they just said, Monty, when you are ready, you need to tell her story mm-hmm. because your daughter wanted her passion was to help other trafficked indigenous women and in this epidemic we hear from the grandmothers the mothers the sisters the aunties the cousins but who we don't hear from are the fathers what do you think that is because when you, when you look at any issue in Indian country, the ones who have made the changes have been always led by our strong indigenous women. When you look at from voting, when you look at the original domestic violence in the 70s, you know, and sexual assaults that are happening, who was protesting? Who was on the front lines? It was always our strong indigenous women, those strong grandmothers, those elders, those those moms, those aunties were always on the front lines, standing up and saying, this has got to stop. And it makes me sad to think that in thinking about how fierce Nada was and her on that high school stage or that classroom graduating high school, like you were talking about in some ways, like the world lost the potential for another strong native woman. Cause in some ways it feels like she should be the one here right now. Oh, well, well, I guess she is. She is. She is. And I guess, and I guess that's what all those strong indigenous women in their own way let me know. Don't don't let her passion, you know, be her passion. Take the passion that she could not use to help others and do that for her. Yeah, and so it, you it, it all makes me think like you brought up that idea of her being a survivor and the generations of sort of trauma that have occurred. The flip side of that though is what you're describing in in these strong native women and even her that something else got passed down. Something else got passed down stronger from 
ancestors than even the trauma, a strength and resilience that I think a heart, most people would have a hard time surviving in these situations or understanding, but there, there must've been something powerful passed on by your ancestors as well. You know, well, we, we always hear stories across Indian country where, you know, that the women, every indigenous society, the women's have such an important role because they, they're, they are given the gift of giving life on, you know, to put new life onto mother earth. And that is so, no matter which tribe you go to, which fairly recognized tribe or urban areas, that's a story that you hear over and over of the, the special gift and strength and spirit that they have because they are the ones that bring life onto Mother Earth. And, and we should never forget that. Yeah. I was going to ask you, just thinking about all of that, like, is there a message that you would have for people in Native communities, outside of Native, Native, Native communities, government leaders, tribal leaders, anyone who cares about these issues? Uh, what, what can we do to contribute to helping solving this problem of missing and murdered indigenous people and and also just all the other inequities that exist in indian country is there anything you can think of that we can do oh boy you are asking a, a question that has been asked since first contact hmm. and like the stories i have heard and I said before, for every federal Indian policy from first contact, it will take seven generations to heal. So I think when I hear that, and I've heard these stories from so many strong elders, even though I am one myself now, it has never left me. And knowing that until we can get through all those generations of trauma. But the one thing I will say is, is that, is that we have, we were, we will always be here. Our spirit world put us on mother earth for a reason. And and we are still here. And those agencies need to understand that we are the protectors of Mother Earth. And we are the protectors of all of our, all of our relatives. And I think our resiliency has shown that. And hopefully that resiliency will be seen and be respected and given the resources that are needed, even though they're coming late in the game. But at least listening and showing true effort to assist our families, 
are advocates in this epidemic? Yeah, I've no one should have to suffer, but I guess it's universal as a part of life. But I've never seen anyone stronger than the and more resilient than the people who have made it through suffering and still found hope and optimism. I'm curious. And well, I wouldn't even say that. suffering. I would just look at the word I've heard so many times in Indian country is genocide, because if those federal policies would have worked, I wouldn't be talking to you right now. Right. But, right. you know, but we are resilient and, and, you know, we have, we are, we have survived genocide. If there was any message that you would want people to take away from this conversation and thinking about the context of, anything. I mean, one thing that just strikes me is that word survivor, because it doesn't just apply to NADA. It it applies to the entire community and, you know, 580 other tribes. But is there any message you would want Indigenous women and others, uh, others in Native communities to take away? Well, I just think we, 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 we will always we will always keep fighting to find our loved ones. And when this happens, even in my story, you know, I'd rather I would have rather had and many people did come to me and say, Monty, I don't know what to say. And I tell them that's what I rather hear than I'm sorry or sorry for your loss. I rather have them say honestly, I don't know what to say. But I do know that for all of us in Indian country who have buried our children, we know that a big part of us dies with our child. And I know I will never be the same Monty from May 26, two years ago. Because we are not meant to bury our children before us. And that's what what I, I live with, is people will never understand that unless they have buried a child, and especially in Indian country, because our spirituality, our stories, you know, say very different things. And when I meet other Native caregivers who have buried their child, we have a very unique bond that no words have to be said. Mm-hmm. And just thinking about the enormity, I don't even know what to say. Rarely, rarely am I at a loss for words. Um, but Monty- and, and, and that's what a lot of people say to me, you know, and that's the right thing to say. Many of us would rather just hear that than just some made up, oh, I'm sorry for your loss or something like that. You know, it it just is a story that's so 
many of our indigenous communities live every single day. Well, I wanted to thank you. I know it can't always be easy to to tell a story like this. On the other hand, I just appreciate all you've done to build awareness for the topic. And I, I just appreciate your time in this space, Monty. Thank you. Well, it it truly is a gift to talk about my daughter. And as somebody, you know, very special in my life said, you know, when you tell her stories, and especially on these podcasts, her spirit will always be out there. Well, and, I appreciate you sharing. And, 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 and yeah, well, I, I really appreciate you, Jason, reaching out because I always think in our spiritual teachings, things happen for a reason. Yeah. So I have hoping, a feeling, Monty, this will not be the last you see of me. Well, <laughs> it, would, it would be nice, Jason. And, you know, if your listeners um, would like to reach out to me, Mm-hmm. I'm hoping you will, you will share my contact information contact with information. them because I've, that's how sometimes these, the, the story keeps traveling. And mm-hmm. I want to make sure that if somebody would like me to tell her story, there's a way to reach out to me and I'll leave it up to you, Jason, to, to reach out to me if somebody does contact you through this podcast. Absolutely. Absolutely. Well, thank you so much, Monty. Yeah. And hopefully, you know, I, I know it's, tragic to go through what you and so many native communities have gone through, but I appreciate your strength in being able to carry her story forward and to tell it. So thanks again. Well, it's, it's really a a gift. And I always say and in my story is that native story is still relevant, but I know there will be a time when there'll be another indigenous family when it'll be time for their story and when that happens my daughter's story can rest and that'll be okay too right and as we say in 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 our ojibwe language there is no word for goodbye we we just say what we say we we say give a wabanan which means we'll see you later Give a wabanan. Yep, give a means we'll, okay. we will see we'll, we will see you later in a good way. And so, Jason, I hope you and I will see each other hopefully in person sometime. And I think that'd be a, a an amazing gift to just see you in person and give you a hug and say thank you for what you did for having this podcast and this talk. Absolutely, I have this strong feeling I'm going to make that happen. <laughs> Thanks, Monty. If you would like to join us. For more discussions with us and our listeners, we can be found on most social media platforms, including a listener-run Facebook group called the Silver Linings Fireside Chat. For deeper conversations with our guests and live conversations with other listeners, you can also join us on our Patreon at www.patreon.com forward slash the Silver Linings Handbook. This is the Silver Linings Handbook Podcast. I'm Jason Blair. We'll see you all again next week.